Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the Marvelized, uh, newly Marvelized uh, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. I did guard the galaxy last night. My son and I enjoyed it. We uh, we began the experience with the world's largest uh, soda being offered to us. And then the lady saying, and you can get one free refill. And I just laugh so hard i just died <laughs> they were gonna back up the tanker truck and refill your your drink oh, man I got to, drip. yeah i got to rewatch the dungeons and dragons movie now that it's out uh, on paramount plus and my daughter did not have a chance to see it originally because she mm. was very busy at school so we got to watch it as a family again still two thumbs up still very yeah. happy uh, that it was made even if we may never get a sequel or not <laughs> not get one soon yeah but that's a story for another day another day because we have listener stuff to get to the the conversation on our discord channel is amazing mm, really really I, good i can't keep up so many smart people there with so many varied but still reasoned opinions about things, mm -hmm. it's been pretty wonderful. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Really awesome. Uh, and, and that led to uh, this next question from Chad Lynch. Yeah. Yep. So Chad asks, do you think that Wizards of the Coast are trying not to limit the imagination of the Dungeon Master by leaving this kind of how-to information out of the Dungeon Master's Guide? Or do you think it was simply an oversight? I know when I'm creating projects, I feel like I'm balancing between giving enough information and brevity. So I can see both sides to this. Uh, Teos, thoughts? I, I like this question because it's sort of a, a good way for, for me to say that, I, you know, sometimes I worry that people listening will think, man, the, the Teos and Sean are saying the DMG is the worst thing ever. How could they ever have done this? What fools? And, and it's not that it's that, right? Like we are being critical, we are analyzing, we're critiquing what the DMG is and thinking about how it could be better. Doesn't mean I think I can write a better one. And it doesn't mean that, that I think that they are somehow have done, you know, they are fools or have done a terrible job, not at all. It is a very hard task to write a Dungeon Master's Guide. And, and it's one of those things, like we've said before, if you have all the levers and you try to put them to the good position, inevitably some flip up when you pull others down, there's only so much space. So if you think about like this DMG and you say like, okay, when we are talking about the planes, what do we do? Do we delete 90% of that planar information? Where does that go? Does it disappear from the edition? Do we have to publish another book that might not sell well? Do you delete some of it and add some tools and guides to help the DM work with it? it it's so hard, right? Like, and, and I can pick where I think I might want to do it. That doesn't mean that that DMG would be perfect either. What, what do you think, John? Yeah, I think it, this is, as you say, an incredibly difficult and complicated issue. And we definitely, I definitely don't think I could write a better one. Uh, I could definitely try and I would put things in. But a year after I wrote it, I would be sitting here with you <laughs> saying the exact same things about it, even though I wrote it that we're yeah. saying about the one that's there. Because you need to be analytical and critical not in the negative sense but in in the analytical sense of figuring these things out uh so i will try to simplify this incredibly mm. difficult issue 
Uh, DMs, Dungeon Masters, they're the engine that keep this game going. And so you want to not only not lose, but you want to gain them. Because if you lose DMs, the game itself loses momentum. So you want to make it as simple as possible for DMs to be able to do the job of DMing. To do that, you have to recognize why people dungeon master. Mm. Often they do it because they want to create something. What is it that they want to create? Some are all about creating worlds. They want to create the world that's in their head. We get that vision down on paper. Some want to create stories. They don't care what world it's in. They have these stories they want to create. Some want to create plots, uh, intricate plans that would be the basis for a wonderful movie. Um, some want to just have a fun time with family and have it go smoothly. So you need to uh, analyze why people DM and then give them the tools with which to do that. But you also need to show them how to use those tools or at least the basics of those tools. So you need to give the character, the DMs, the tools to run the game at the table and then explain why it runs the way it runs. The why needs to go with the how. How do you do it? This way. Why is it done this way? For these reasons. Because then you can recognize that the DMs are going to modify the how based on the why. If they understand the why things are done this way, then they can make their own hows. They can throw away those tools. They can do different things with those tools. But if they never understand the why then they're never going to have the information to make those informed choices. And so that's why, at least on my end of this, I'm always going to explain why these planes are important and how to use them. Why do they yeah. make important and fun stories? And why do they even and exist? Exactly, exactly. So that's where my focus is. And a lot of my focus has recently has been on sort of beginning DMs and beginning players and how to bring new people, both players and DMs into the game. So that's why, as we've been looking at this, the Dungeon Master's Guide in this way, my analysis, my critique mm -hmm. has been focused in that direction. Yeah, great thoughts. Um, the, the, the other piece that this makes me think of and, and hearing you saying that is that when I when I look at the larger, not the you know a particular thing we're saying about a chapter, but the larger view, it feels to me like, and especially when I look at you know older books, right, the three point five, uh, you know any number of these, right? Here's my battle worn two <laughs> <laughs> e second uh, edition. Yeah, they're they are sometimes remarkably similar across the editions. What's been done. Mm -hmm. And not only three and three point yep. five, but but two e one e, and it's like there, it's we're all we've grown up on the same approach. In fact, five e is a lot like three e. The the DMG approach, even that part we read the intro that sort of tries to right. pump you up, is a lot like a piece that's in in third edition, which is a thing they can do, right? They can use their own material and use it. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's like we are all locked into a narrow tunnel way of looking at the game which has through history been people who were highly invested in the game and turning to this as a sort of Bible 
and studying all of its words endlessly with the time that they had in a world that had no other devices or entertainment <laughs> except for three channels of television. And our world is so different today. And so I think that that's if I could say one thing that the, you know hits on that question around the question of, you know, or is it someone uh, is it sort of, you know, over um, was the, the um, um, is it an oversight? I think the oversight is more a lack of perspective. We often have I include myself in it of what that hobby looks like to so many of those new players, the majority of which have started with fifth edition and are therefore fairly new. And and that's mm -hmm. the hard task for whatever is going to be done to revise a DMG if we're going to do it. It's not about what I would me coming up with my list of chapters or whatever, or what I cover in a particular chapter. But I think that they need to actually go out there and test this with people. They really need to almost mm -hmm. like you do with a television show or a movie, right? To like really say, hey, you brand new person from this gaming store. Come look at this, right? I will pay you for your time. Tell me what you think about mm -hmm. this. They need to do that, that approach. Because you need more feedback and you need everybody on the staff to not not the two cool people, the three cool people, whatever. It has to be everybody in the staff who's saying, you know what I'm finding when I work with people? It's this piece and just critique and, and pick it apart because we've been using sort of the same type of approach forever. And I think we're in a different world now. <laughs> Sean. We are most definitely in a different <laughs> world now. And that's another bit of feedback I get is oh, we don't have to teach people how to DM in the book because there are videos and there are mm -hmm. streams. And and that's true to a point. Those are other tools. But you need to tell people who buy the book in the book how to use the book. That, that That's all there is to it. Yeah. You can't yeah. rely on those other things. You can mention them. You can set them up nicely on your website. You can put the little QR codes that people can scan on their phone mm -hmm. and get to those videos. But you also need to actually spell it out in the product that people are buying for that purpose. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that these DMGs do not suffer for lack of talent, right? You look at the names in any of these, you know, Andy Collins, Monty Cook, uh, Jonathan Tweet, you know, Kenneth Hyde, any number of geniuses of the RPG industry are in these books. And so it, it, I think in some ways it's less about that. Not that that isn't important, but um, but bringing in the, the the random person, right? The the, the average person who's going to actually use right. this and thinking it and seeing it through their lens is, is probably what we need more than anything else. Yeah, that's one talent. You know, you, you these people, you say they're geniuses and they are. And sometimes geniuses have the hardest time teaching mm. because they don't understand what it's like for less intelligent people like me to <laughs> understand right. something that they're trying to explain. And that's why it's sometimes good to, to go to somebody who may not uh, understand these complex issues on a deep level from the start and, and break, break it down. So, yeah. yeah, we have another email or we have an email mm -hmm. from Axel who says, I wonder why Wizards of the Coast focuses so much on homebrew, be it worlds or adventures. As Teos said, they sell pre-made adventure books. It's nice that they talk about creating adventures, but advice on prepping and running their very own published adventures would be much more useful. I miss concrete steps and how to prep and run published adventures. 
What do you think about putting such concrete steps like Mike Shea's eight prep steps about prepping and running published adventures into rules for the DM? What parts need to go into a core rule book and what parts need to go into the adventures? And for me, it goes back to what I said before about, uh, you know, about saying the, not just the how, but the why. Mm -hmm. So Putting, quote, a pub a guide to published adventure prep in the Dungeon Master's Guide would certainly be handy with the understanding that we're going to say why we prep this way, not just how we prep this way. Then mm -hmm. a Dungeon Master can decide, okay, I understand this why already. I can skip this step, but these other six steps I think are, are important. One of the big things that came out on the DMs Guild were various guides to running blank mm. uh, yeah. several power score rpg yeah. i believe you know made a living putting out these books to explain to offer suggestions to offer alterations and so i fear doing something like that if wizards did that there would be a uh what do they call it a declining <laughs> profit margin for them where there are people out there who could do it and do it very well and become a trusted voice in helping people. So I think a, a series of steps and why those steps are there would be handy. I don't know that we need to get too far into the weeds on that. I think that it'd be great for something like the starter sets, right? Like I, I often look at that first mm -hmm. starter set adventure and I think, boy, it could really use a sidebar here that says, hey, these goblins are deadly. <laughs> you don't want to TPK mm -hmm. your party in this first encounter and it can happen what what's going on here right why did we make this dangerous right well because we want to really wake up these players and give them a real sense of suspense and we want them to then follow back and so we're, we're making them important right well here are what you can do around that right that would be great or you're in the right. town there's like nine thousand quests in here how do you pick what to present to your players to not overwhelm like that kind of thing would be great uh, it could be a separate booklet. It could be sidebars in there. I don't know what's better there, but but I do think that there are there are particular cases where that would be really good. And I think the DMG could give some good advice, similar to what Mike Mike Shea covers, that would be time well spent, space well spent, to say when you're using an a, a prepared pre-published adventure. Here are some key things to take into consideration, right, and some steps to follow to make it yours. That's that that would be good good time, I think. Yep. And Axel continues uh with the following. And what do you think of concrete rules for creating homebrew adventures? Mm -hmm. Like a framework for creating your own adventures, maybe separated into one-shots, multi-session adventures, or a long-running campaign. These rules could have things like a sort of form to fill out starting encounter, middle encounters to drive the story toward its climax, and then a final boss encounter. Uh, Kelsey Dion uses very practical elements in her adventures, like a dramatic question for each encounter and a transition to the next encounter. Uh, these could all be elements of such a framework. What are your thoughts about that? Well, as Teo so kindly mentioned a previous show, I did a whole D&D Beyond series called Let's Design an Adventure. And I do exactly this. On that series, I talk about processes that I use to design adventures uh, in the framework of the four-hour adventure that I've written so many times for 
organized play. And I'm not going to recite the entire 10 article series. That's a shame. But you can create, yeah, you could create, well, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, we could create a checklist to do these things. Uh, and if you're thinking about those things, chances are you're going to create encounters that are fun and fit into your overall adventure. Uh, my way is not the only way, though. There are countless, countless methods to get to the same conclusions. So Kelsey calls something dramatic questions and transitions, and I'm going to call it something else. Mm -hmm. But the objectives are the same. The objectives are think about the story. Think about what the characters are going to be doing and why. Think about what you need to add to the encounter to make sure that the characters are seeing the important things that the story wants them to see. So you could definitely do that. And then you would get a ton of people saying that's wrong. That's, that's not the, this is the way that you should do it. And again, so it's not necessarily the what or the how, but the why, the why are these things there? I think that's an excellent question to, to kind of warm everyone up for our discussion that we're going to have when we look at the, the DMG chapter three, part two, because in our main segment, we're going to talk mm -hmm. about how the DMG tries to give you a sort of process and it doesn't fit a lot of times in a lot of scenarios. And I think that's really interesting to look at. So, so I think we'll revisit this. For sure. So Axel, thank you for those uh, questions via email. Let's go now to our news and commentary section. And we have a bit to talk about because the D&D release schedule uh, was presented and they're increasing prices plus putting out books. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about all of that. Uh, the 2023 schedule has been clarified. Marketing is starting for an August book right now. Just in time for, yeah. I guess. I mean, especially. Uh, so what, what did we you. Look, what, if we look at like how keys to the golden vault had so little marketing because of the OGL crisis. And so to, to now start hearing about this August book and September and October, it's like, Oh, wow. Okay. They, they've turned on that engine of marketing. Mm -hmm. And they need to. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. Because they have a lot coming out with the 2024 core book release sort of, backstopping but possibly blocking any sales coming forward so i'm gonna i want you to to start out with the with what your sure. thoughts or what you so took note of there was a sort of media summit that took place and uh various news-ish you know geek news outlets were invited to visit wizards of the coast and all of the various top staff were there to answer questions and and uh there were some really interesting quotes so one was perkins saying the past DMGs were more like the Dungeon Master's warehouse. This one's a guide. True, probably. It, and it's good because we've talked about the need for the warehouse and the need for the guide. Mm -hmm. They've got the warehouse out there now. Let's <laughs> let's see the guide. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, Nathan Stewart had a very interesting quote where he cited Wizards for, quote, not listening to fans for the entirety of D&D's fourth edition. Wow. Um, you know, we just had an OGL debacle. You're telling me that we're really good at listening to fans now? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. I've been I've been working. I've been working. 
I've been working on my anger issues recently and I've, I've tried to get myself into a good headspace. And mm -hmm. then things like this are said and it just gets my blood boiling. Uh, it's, it's just a marketing business thing. Let's throw past us because I wasn't there. So I can say how bad we, those people who were in my role before were, he was there for part of I'm it. doing it right now. Right. Exactly. And we saw this when, when they announced fourth edition, mm -hmm. that was the worst. We were sitting at Gen Con in the big hall with all the rows of seating and people are, you know, knew it was coming, but didn't know what was going to be said. And what they, a lot of trashing some of the some of the trickier parts of third edition, right? How complicated it yeah. was. And it's just such a horrible way to market. It's such a horrible really way to sound. And I can't stand it when people say, well, look at how bad we were, but we are so much better now, especially when you're in the middle of not really being any better now. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think it's true that back then and, they didn't listen like that. They they were constantly listening to fans. Right. You you may succeed or fail, but yeah. there was no shortage of staff in the 4E era who were constantly listening to fans and acting upon it. Yeah, you know, what a yeah, it's a terrible comment. But uh, you know, these are those kinds of events right. where someone speaks for an hour, they're going to say something dumb. <laughs> That's what ends up in the uh, in the news. Yeah. So give them a bit yeah. of a break for that, but and, uh, yeah, and what they'll what they'll what they'll never say, but what is a hard truth is that sometimes fans are idiots. Mm. Um, you don't always want to listen to your fans. Uh, I know because I am a fan of D and D, and I am often an idiot. Mm. I often say they should do this, and they do the opposite, and it works. And I'm glad they didn't listen to me. <laughs> so you know, you it's not it's not the information you get; it's how you use the information yeah. you get wisely. Yeah, and then for the virtual tabletop, there are, the plan is to see how players use it in playtests before deciding how to monetize it. And boy, there's one where that makes my business side blood boil because I'm like, you know, there are lots of virtual tabletops out there. You can take a look at those and think through ways that those can be monetized. This is not some wild exploration beyond the unimaginable realm. You know, we're not in some quantum realm that we're entering. It's a virtual tabletop. I think you know the various ways you could monetize it, and you're spending probably millions on this. You really should have a plan. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, and and maybe they do. Maybe this was just you know maybe this is just marketing speak to to try to let them know how you know hip they are and how I mean maybe how they're going to listen to the fans and they're going to change. They said the same thing at the summit and 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 the way that they reacted to various questions we had, I don't know that they do have a plan and I don't think it's because they have their let's say a plan is we will wait until play testing and then assess things. And and that could be if I put it into pretty speak it could be we have a variety of models we're considering we will fine tune them based on playtesting, which would be a very pretty way of saying it. I don't think that's actually the case. I think that because of the way Wizards is organized, I mean, what do I know? But my guess would be there are so many competing departments and statements and thoughts that there is no coherent plan. And that is really bad. <laughs> and they should all work as a team mm -hmm. and put egos and whatever's aside and have a very solid plan for the marketing of this thing because everything should be aligned with that strategy when you're a for-profit company.
But um, yes. we also got some demographics, Sean. I thought that was interesting. Uh, we got that the uh, player population is now 60% male, 39% female, 1% identifying otherwise. 60% and, and then they give some online things. 60% are hybrid players who switch between playing the game physically or online. And that was interesting to me because of what doesn't say, which is it does not say how many people are playing online or in person. So it's almost like saying 60% of people sometimes play online. Which could be a little dangerous for their virtual tabletop. And I'm wondering if, based on what I've seen in some other surveys, people are going back to playing in person. Which would also be bad news for if you're you know, trying to really cash in on a virtual tabletop. We'll see. Um, the other yeah. statistic was 50, 58% of people play D&D on a weekly basis. What do you think, Sean? Uh, I would love to be one of those 58%. <laughs> I'm lucky to get in, get in like once a month. Uh, True. My thought on this is great. Uh, we all know what statistics are, mm. right? There's lies, there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. So, it's great information. Here's what I want. Make a great game for all of those people to play. However they play, whoever they are, let's make a really, really great game yeah. that is so fun to play that you don't want to play anything else. Well, I suspect the VTT is so far behind that it can't really influence the role-playing game. And that's a thought I had when I was at the summit, that yeah. because this game this virtual tabletop can't say to the team hey we need to code this stuff you know give us the rules in a different better format they're not at that point yet they're still working on visuals and basic engine frameworks and things like that so they're the game will just do what the game is going to do yeah uh, it would take i think the thought is there but i don't think the thought is in any way shape or form capable of being carried mm -hmm. out beyond the most basic yeah. you know basic uh, understanding yeah. and so whenever i see people go over the the unearthed arcana articles and they say oh right there that proves that they're making the game solely for the tabletop i'm like no yeah no, no. nice try but no they did look at generations so the player population for dnd the bulk 48 percent are millennials uh, which explains why everything is being ruined. I'm just kidding. It's a joke, millennials. Uh, at least people remember wow. who you are. 19% uh, are from Generation X and 33% from that heralded Generation Z. Um, it's interesting to me they even shared this. <laughs> yeah. I, I I feel like it's non-controversial. Mm -hmm. uh, so it it sort of says, "Hey, look, we're doing we're doing market research, and here's some inoffensive uh, information that that we can share, and that really doesn't mean a heck of a lot in the long run, uh, because it's not going to change too much the way that they're making this game, the virtual tabletop, or or anything else." Yeah, and speaking of this puppy. Uh, Crawford said, we actually built 5th edition as a follow-up to 2nd edition. I thought that was a really interesting statement to make because I've heard otherwise from other designers that worked on 5th edition. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and I think the thing I hear the most is that it's, um, it's really a mix, right? They drew really pretty evenly from a lot of different influences. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, I do think that Tui is, it has a lot of Tui feel to it, but it's moved more and more away from that as it develops. And so I'd be curious to, to know, you know, this quote was in the news release, but I, what I don't know is what was around it, because I think. Crawford's really a person who's been taking it away from second edition. And I would, I would love to ask, why are you moving away from where you started? I think it came out as a follow spiritual follow-up to second edition. I don't know. Is that when they sat down to build it, they're like, Hey, let's make this as close to second edition as possible while still keeping you know, some of the game mechanical conveniences that we put in place. Like you don't have to look at a Thaco table to figure out if you, if you hit. Right. Right. Um, so I, I think I could see it coming out that way. I don't think there were any meetings where like they said, let's build this edition as a follow up to second <laughs> edition. Um, Cause I think the people that designed third and fourth edition may have a little bit to say about that. Yeah. Um, we heard that D&D is going to celebrate its 50th anniversary with a quote-unquote year-long celebration of the brand, and then no one was willing to say anything specific. So we'll see how we celebrate all year long next year. Um, Perkins said that uh, when he and Crawford finished making D&D 5e in 2014, he said it would be the last edition of D&D he'd ever work on. And because this is still a new edition, Perkins is still here, and he says, I'm glad that's still true. And I thought to myself, wait, is that why they made it the same edition? <laughs> yeah. Just just to make uh, Chris's statement true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I mean, he's a person that I've often thought seems wary. And, and I could see him, you know, saying, all right, I'm, I'm off. I think if someone had, had an, uh, offered him a, a screenwriting, uh, show writing uh job he'd he'd have headed off but but yeah i mean i'm glad he's with us right but it is interesting to hear him say that and sort of reaffirm that he is almost has one foot out the door or an eye out the door it's interesting and uh, what what's this news about their staggered release for for uh 5e 5e well i guess some folks have been criticizing why aren't you releasing all three books at the same time which generally they've not done that right they've released them one at a time uh, and they said that one of the reasons is that printers can't handle it. And Ian World has a thread on this. Apparently, they can't turn to printers and have them make all three books in these huge quantities that they use. And it's apparently even true of releases like Tasha's that it's a huge stress on the various printing companies and distribution companies. So st- staggering it actually is a logistical thing as much as anything else. That was really wow. interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, and we now have heard from Amazon that we'll, we'll be able to see physical digital bundles being sold where you buy a physical copy and you get an email with a D&D Beyond code that will allow you to get the digital version. And so people have been clamoring for that mm-hmm. and seeing that being carried out uh, despite all the complications that go into doing that is uh, you know, is a good thing. That's yeah, and, that's and, Wizards of the Coast listening to the fans and making it happen. 
and working out some deal with Amazon in some way. And, and the thing that I would say is why is there no way that through the WPN Windows Play Network or some other mechanism you can do it with local gaming stores? But at least it's now it takes a little bit from that emphasis on having to be through some D&D storefront. So we'll see. Now let's get to the um, elephant-sized money bag in the room, the price increase. The D&D Community Update page was updated to say that Bigby Presents, Glory of the Giants, will see an increase, a price increase of 20%. This will include both the bundle and the print copy. Now the digital price will remain the same. So we're going from $49.95 to $59.95. Um, the price of the 2024 books was not mentioned. Uh, and I know that Teos and I are in agreement on this, which is not what most of the people in the in the fandom would say. Which is, I'm going to let you take the bunt of this one, Teos. <laughs> I mean, it's great news. Uh, books are absurdly amazing for their price and there are so many ways to get free content that i'm not at all worried about accessibility yes not everybody can afford everything that's was true yesterday it'll be true tomorrow it was true 10 years ago but i mean when you look at the quality of this book and compare it to today's books today's books are unbelievable the art the layout just the quality of the paper all of it and prices have not moved since 5e launched and even then, we're so close. And someone did an analysis like uh, the $15 AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide would cost about $70 today, right, in today's money. Mm -hmm. The $30 Player's Handbook yep. is around $53, right? Like, they're really cheap. <laughs> they may not feel that way because you pay a lot of money up front and, and, and $60 is real money. But then you get years i mean we're 10 years into fifth edition right 10 years of enjoyment of these books that is a ludicrously cheap thing when you divide it by 10 <laughs> and so you know i think that that where if fans wanted to argue about value i think where you might look at is the larger typeface which i'm not opposed to right but there is a larger typeface that started with tasha's there's also been a change to page count now, again, I'm cool with this. Like, I like Sean. I love me a tight, focused book. And and actually, I think like that's actually great because then it becomes a little, you can make it even more affordable, but smaller. Uh, that's a model I like. But we're getting a higher price, larger typeface, and we're getting shorter books. So the Bigby's book is 128 pages, pages with this larger font. Volo's was 224 pages with a smaller font. Morden Canaan's 256 with a smaller font. Van Richten's with the larger font was 256 pages, right? But it's like at least the page count's the same. So we're seeing a shrinking page count, larger font, and a higher price. And that is, I think, where actually fans could have something to say, you know, this is a lot. But maybe, Sean, you want to chat about like the larger industry perspective of this price? Yeah, I. we've been saying forever that this is an under-monetized hobby that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, as much as people hate to hear that there is so much good that comes out good in the sense of quality and the time that you spend doing it 
based on a 20 page book, you could spend, you know, years of fun. Yeah. And if people are willing to support the hobby through these price increases, it gives more people like you and I more chance to create the stuff that people yeah. actually want. So if Wizards can charge 60, that gives other publishers who may have less profit margins the chance to follow suit. And instead of having such a slim profit margin with printing costs and shipping costs exponentially higher than they have been in the last 20 years uh, now, it it's just, it's good for the industry. If you don't want to buy the more expensive books online, the digital uh, content mm -hmm. is still the same price. That's not increasing. So you can still go that route. And I am... I am all about this and yeah. very happy to see it happening. Yeah, agreed. And I was just reading someone's account on Twitter about their attempt to self-publish through Kickstarter. And, and essentially, they're operating at a loss. They're not paying themselves. They funded, but their funding level is too low. And they're hoping they'll make it up in, in later orders. And that is a rough model, right? That is... That's a model of passion that relies on the passion of people to create rather than actually putting them in place where they can afford health care and retirement and all those things, or even just every day paying bills and getting out of debt. And so this helps with that. And I'm, I, I'm, I know we're both all for it. <laughs> yep. We also got an updated release schedule, including the following. Bigby Presents Glory of the Giants releasing in August. Uh, what anything change about that? Any new information about? Yeah, that? I mean, so this was a book that was supposed to come out around now, and it's unclear why it mm -hmm. was delayed. It's been said by Roy Winninger uh, since his departure. He has spoken on various things and said that this is the first time they went with no freelancers working on a book. So apparently, it didn't speed things up, <laughs> or maybe they decided to hold it because of mm -hmm. any number of issues, OGL or otherwise. Uh, it's all about giants. It's like the Fizzbands Dragon book. Narrated by Bigby from Greyhawk. The cover has made people, uh, covers are out and uh, have made a, a couple of us wonder because it shows, I guess it's a gnome on the cover. And, and Greg Tito mentioned to me on Twitter that perhaps he has been reincarnated. Because Big, Bigby's human. He's from the Greyhawk setting. And, and I, I made a joke about, you know, we will continue to strip Greyhawk for parts until morale improves because... You know, <laughs> I don't even know what what it's Big B's book, but Big B isn't Big B or who knows. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of giant stuff in here. There's uh, a path of the giant subclass, giant foundling and rune carver backgrounds, eight feats, 76 new monsters, 30 new magic items. And the monsters include two I really want to see an old favorite, the giant tick and the bag jelly. Next up in August is the Practically Complete Guide to Dragons coming out August 15th. This is $39.95, uh, 128 pages. Takes the content of the 2006 Practical Guide to Dragons and updates it. Uh, they were pretty successful. There were several practical guides. There was a practical guide to monsters. Mm -hmm. uh, as Teos notes in our show notes, there was a dragon riding one and a dragon magic one. 
Now, this book will not contain any stats or any rules. It's just art and lore narrated by a Kender wizard. And it sort of comes from a Dragonlance perspective and uh, this Kender wizard's childlike uh, awe and description of the, the, the dragons that they have come across. And I think this is brilliant. Yeah. This is the way that you start toward a billion dollar industry mm-hmm. by not making every book so thick with rules, uh, you know, put something out there that you can put up in a Barnes and Noble and not have to know the game, but you can just buy it and enjoy it for the lore and the art of it. I, I love those books. I have the the dragon one. I mean, it's just gorgeous. It takes the third edition gorgeous dragon book and just builds upon it. It has things like scales you can touch and little things in pouches and fantastic book. Love it. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Mm-hmm. We also have Fen Delver and below the shattered obelisk coming out September 19th, another $60 book, a campaign covering levels one to 12 at 224 pages. You return to Fandolin and the 2014 starter set location. This adventure focuses on the obelisks that they so <laughs> clearly purposefully seeded reading Teos's uh words there around the adventures and which were not at all a random fan theory um, and they were seized upon and actually resolved in rhyme of the frost maiden uh, i couldn't help myself reports say yeah that it's <laughs> yeah i know reports say that it is a cosmic horror campaign for fans of traditional dungeon crawls including a double-sided poster map a bestiary with 16 new monsters, some new magic items, new player options, and a special cover art version that will be in gaming stores. I haven't bought a lot uh, of recent stuff that's come out. This one I'm going to, mm. for sure. I want to yeah. see what they do with this. Yeah. Tell, tell us, hey, Planescape confirmed, Teos. Planescape confirmed adventures or confirmed? in the multiverse. And by multiverse, they don't mean the entire multiverse. <laughs> but they'll still charge you 60 bucks. Uh, it comes out October 17th, a three-book set, as we've heard before, uh, to bring back this beloved 1994 setting, which Mike Shea recently shared with us, an image that showed all of the old 2E Planescape books. I forget how many it is, but it's, you know, let's say 30. It's some unbelievable amount of source books. Uh, but we get three books. 256 pages total. Sigil and the Outlands. That, there's your multiverse. So uh, we talked about this in the, in the previous planar, uh, how that arranges, right? We're not talking about the inner planes or the outer planes. This is Sigil and the Outlands. 96-page rules and setting guide. Morty's Planar Parade, a 64-page bestiary, bestiary. And Turn of Fortune's Wheel, a 96-page adventure taking you across the Outlands to discover a plot to undermine the rules of reality, which has caused a glitch in the multiverse. Contend with mighty immortals and chronicle the farthest reaches of the Outlands to uncover the truth of this conspiracy. And a DM screen and a two-sided poster map, similar to that Spelljammer set we got. And a limited edition version of gaming stores with art by Tony Dieterlizzi, the famous Planescape artist that really brought that setting to life. What do you think, Sean? Uh, I probably will not buy it, but I'm very happy for people who have been waiting for Planescape for years and years and years. Uh, maybe some kind person will will buy it and run a game 
so I can be a player. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Fisher on Twitter spoke to us, exchanged messages with us, pointing out that there is a one of the articles talked about at one point you'll be able to sort of play high level. And that's sort of interesting. Like there's something in it that I guess causes you to play, to go straight to higher levels of play, something like that. Um, and I think that's a really fascinating concept because, you know, we are talking about a relatively short adventure. So somehow that is taking place, very fitting of the planes. Um, I, I think this is just one of these products that you have to look at. If you're a fan, you just have to emotionally prepare yourself for what is possible in this product. Um, if you saw Spelljammer, you're a little more prepared because there's a lot you could want the Spelljammer books to do that they did not. In particular, I would say they didn't really tell me how to run a Spelljammer campaign. They gave me rules I can use in them, and they gave me player content to use in them, and the ship stats and things like that, but they didn't tell me what to do with that or how to craft a great uh, Spelljammer campaign that I could turn to these this set over and over again and say, yes, this is my how-to guide, right, as we talk about. And will uh, Planescape do this? Will it tell me how to create awesome planar adventures? Maybe, maybe not, right? The fact that it's so focused on Sigil and the Outlands will, I think, uh, focus it a lot. Uh, Maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. It'll be interesting to see. But I can tell you the way I'm feeling right now is I kind of hope that there isn't, that Wizards does not create a 5e version of Dark Sun, because I don't really want to see it in this format, Sean. I think it would hurt my soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I you know, Nostalgia is a wonderful and terrible thing, and you you can only do so much. You can't republish 26 supplements that have been put out before, mm-hmm. update them to 5th edition, and sell them in a way that isn't going to lose you millions of dollars. Yeah. So you have to do what you have to do. Yeah, but also the approach. Like I would argue that Tomb of Annihilation is a better Chult setting than Spelljammer is a Spelljammer setting because of the format. Mm-hmm. And and so I would rather our Dark Sun Five E came out. And looked like Tomb of Annihilation than it looked like the Spelljammer set. I think the fact this three box set is almost like confusing everything to where you feel like you're getting a setting, but you're not really getting a setting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, it's it's a matter of scope, right? With the Chult is different than Planescape. Mm-hmm. Planescape is its own thing, whereas Chult is just a realm within the Forgotten Realms. So you can do that in a single book. If you just put out an adventure, a Planescape quote-unquote adventure, the people who've been waiting for years and years and years for the new Planescape setting mm-hmm. would revolt. They would say, is this all we're getting? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, am I am I wrong? <laughs> no, no, you're right. But, but I think that... Um... I guess it goes to whether you're teaching people how to do it or not, or just giving them an an experience. And and I think that what Tomb of Annihilation did well is it gave me the things I would need to adventure further in Chult. And I would argue Mm -hmm. that the Spelljammer, especially the way the adventure is written, the adventure is a fun experience, but not a thing that I can easily 
lift and borrow from and repurpose and it's not worlds I'm likely to revisit and just any of that. Right. And so it's, it's utility is just much lower, yeah. but, but I, I mean, I guess, and, and I've been chatting with friends about this. Maybe we've heard many times that one of the problems with second edition was so many settings that you made every fan into a compartmentalized fan. I am a Planescape fan. I am a Dark Sun fan. And you weren't the other things. Or you were two of them, but not all of them. You couldn't be all of them. And I think Birthright had like 30 products, right? Like, you know, that was just madness. And they lost a lot of money on that. Uh, it was very foolish. Mm-hmm. And so maybe what they're doing deliberately is creating an experience that they don't want to be a lasting experience. I, I think that's giving them too much, uh, as Mike Shea would say, you know, 3d chess giving them too much credit but it almost comes off that way right that that rather than creating the potential for you to really run awesome things within that setting they're just giving you a taste of it and for that i think i'd rather have the mm-hmm. tomb of annihilation format yeah and for the tomb, for me the tomb of annihilation i skipped everything up to omu mm-hmm. wow. i didn't care about i didn't care about chul i didn't care about any of the other yeah i know but it just shows, right, different people, yeah. even invested fans, want different things. I just wanted to get to the tomb, and I wanted mm-hmm. to run it as an adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want all of that. And part of it was the story problem that mm-hmm. we've talked about many times of the world is on fire. You need to solve it. Oh, look. <laughs> dinosaur dinosaur races. races. Right. Yay. Uh, so, And uh, again, nothing wrong with dinosaur races, but while the world's on fire, to spend time at the dinosaur races seems a little bit counterintuitive. So, you know, different fans are going to want different mm-hmm. things. And I I like that they're experimenting with different formats, with different ways to do it. And then they will listen to the fans. And hopefully, because we know they're listening to the fans much more now than they did during fourth edition. <laughs> uh, so hopefully it will all work itself out as, well as we fans make our wills known. <laughs> On the internet. Oh, I forgot about the deck of many things. How could I forget about the deck of many things? It is out on November 14th for $60. It is a box set with 66 illustrated cards and two books. The Book of Many Things, which is 192 pages digging into the lore, showcasing character options, magic items, adventure locations, and monsters. And a reference, a card reference guide of 80 pages showing you how to use the cards and create adventures around them. Um, as mentioned, as we mentioned before, this adds new cards to the original 22 card uh, deck of Many Things. The idea is that a DM can choose which cards to include in the deck and then fine-tune that deck to have more of what the DM and their players may want. Sound good? Yeah, it does. Now we are done with the news. Our main topic this week here on Mastering Dungeons is the DMG Chapter 3 Part 2, Creating Adventures. Last time we talked about the first part of chapter three, talking about the elements of great adventures, published adventures, adventure structure. Uh, We started by talking about the first adventure type, which is a location-driven adventure type, uh, where you dungeon crawl, if you will. There are locations, and the players go to those different locations and do different things. Next the uh the next uh adventure type is an event based adventure 
and an event-based adventure, the focus is on what the characters and villains do and what happens as a result. So what did you think about this, Teos? It's an eight-step process, starting with a villain, determining what the villain's actions are, determining the party's goals, going through NPCs, anticipating reactions, some locations, and then an introduction and a climax, and you work encounters around that. And all of it is very villain-based. And the first thing I thought of is, wow, these are really limited examples. And there, there's like a table of like uh, event-based villain actions. And I'm, I'm just like, wow, I've, you know, when I think of event-based type things I've, I've done, they don't often even include villains. They're like things like survival or, you know, get to the place in time and then a random person entity will show up and, and you have to overcome them or convince them or whatever. But it's not necessarily a clear villain. I thought this had a very like focused lens applied to it that I didn't think was a good idea. When I read it, I thought the same thing you thought. I thought, did someone who wrote this just take an event-based adventure and copy the steps for that particular adventure? And it works for that adventure, but it doesn't work for other types of event-based adventures. And event-based adventures are terribly difficult to write because they rely on timing. And as a game master, you are somewhat beholden to the players on timing. So if you take the situation where there is a succubus that is wreaking havoc in a city and you the characters arrive at the city, maybe they were lured there by rumors of something happening uh, and the succubus is behind it, but they don't know that. So they get there, they maybe go to a crime scene and see something that the succubus did. They gather clues and those clues are supposed to lead them somewhere. Uh, but it's an event-based thing. So they can't get the next set of clues until an event happens. And what will most players do? They want to act. They don't want to wait. So mm -hmm. they take every single clue that you've given them and they track them down to their logical conclusions. And then when they run out of those clues, they start making up clues. Well, maybe that the, the iron mug that the person had, maybe that ties back to this tavern. Uh, is there, are there taverns that, you know, are there taverns in the area? And as the DM, you don't want to say no, because there are taverns in a city. But if you know, if you say yes, they're going to go to these taverns and try to find why yeah. this person had this particular mug. And in the meantime, seven hours of game time have passed <laughs> and you're still only two hours into a real uh, in game time. Uh, and the event is still six hours away from happening. That's going to actually lead them. So it's very, very tough to write. Very, very tough to DM these sorts of adventures. And that's what I want to see uh, in, in this. Yeah. Again, this there's party. very little advice on how to take this apart or build, put it together and, and very little counseling of the dangers of it. The other thing is calling an adventure type like location or event. I think that does a disservice to the reality of it. Like, you know, I was trying to think what is a D and D fifth edition event based adventure. 
they, they like all have lots of locations. There are events in them, you know, and I can think of even like classic adventures that have events in them, but I really don't think of something as being solely event based. And so that with this dichotomy, they've created this binary location event. It's almost like that's an encounter discussion or a, a, a plot segment that can be thought of that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's true. Uh, right. Because I'm thinking back to Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Now, there there are events that happen that could happen mm-hmm. at different locations, maybe. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not what's more important, as you just say, is the encounter that sets these things up what information is provided, whether yeah. the encounter is a location or the encounter is an event, you may have different elements that go into those encounters. They may lead to different things, but it's more important to focus on the encounter than whether it's an event or a location. Yeah, and that it's really this guy that starts off the conversation of what, um, of this event versus location based third edition DMG is where this intersects or interjects itself only becomes a thing of, of like talking about events and it's very similar to the material that's in the, in the 5e dmg and yeah again it's one of those things i would i would tear this apart and say what are we trying to do here and i think what would D keeps trying to do is say we can have open play and then it's like how i don't know <laughs> you know oh use an event-based structure but like i think it's more like that understanding that, the, yeah, sometimes you're just exploring the dungeon and it's definitely about that kind of going through. That is an important mode of play. But also that there are all these other ways that things can be happening. And how do you approach that story-wise? And then how do you back it up in your creations, in your mechanics, in the structure of, of what you're creating as an adventure or a segment of, of your adventure? And, and that's kind of not really super here. That I think also caught or, or in the older editions, which I think causes it causes it to fall a little flat here. Yeah, I would have rather seen a deeper discussion, and maybe there is one later about sort of hex crawl versus mm-hmm. linear adventures. Yeah, then you can get into elements of do you want what the characters encounter to be a location or an event. If it's a location, this is how you play it out. If it's an event, this is things you need to think about uh, yeah. rather than trying to call an adventure itself uh, location or event-based. Yeah, and I think going through this eight-step process, exactly what you're saying, causes you to almost be off track because you're now trying to create an entire adventure that somehow focuses about this when really what it can be is is what is the story that makes sense in your head? And hey, by the way, don't forget that sometimes it's cool to think about what the villain's villain is doing or mm-hmm. think about events that can happen, right. whether they're villain-driven events or they're natural things, right? The storm comes, the you know, the drought hits, the whatever, right? Like these kinds of things that create neat things that you respond to that aren't just delving into a location, right? And here's how to make those things good and here's yeah. how to worry about them. But and and there are, of course like this next section that talks about mysteries, there are times when you're crafting something that really drives itself towards being event driven because that's the control of the pacing. You're, you're in the city and you may go to various locations, but you go to those locations because you're unraveling the clues of this mystery. 
how do you do that right and that and i think it's somehow this doesn't i'd be surprised if a new dm read that section and or these sections of of, of, of events and mysteries and said oh yeah I, i'm totally doing this i know how to do it yeah yeah it's it's good advice in general but it's not serviceable advice when you actually sit down to try to do steps one through eight. Yeah. Yeah, um, we get this. And as Teos mentioned, we get mm-hmm. mysteries. Uh, they call it event-based, often around a crime. Uh, they say it's harder to predict the character's actions in mysteries, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, following the, You're supposed to follow the event, event-based steps, Plus add three others. Who's the victim? Who are the suspects? And what are the clues? Yeah. And there's some good advice in here. You You've know, written too mysteries. many clues. Yeah. Uh, I imagine you have as well. Uh, so I hear about yours. <laughs> I don't think there was any guide that helped me. I, I think that what I did is I looked at people who'd done it well. And I thought about that. Right. So like one I'd say is uh, in Dungeon 205, Infernal Wrath. Uh, written by Logan Bonner, uh, he does a great job of what you would call events. Like this is an event-based thing. He says every day there is enough time to do two things. So the players get to choose what those two things are to investigate. And you've got the whole town there. And in the evening, someone's going to die. And that will lead to new things to investigate, right? Plus clues will lead to new things to investigate. And so it's going to start moving forward. And at the end, your players will have gathered enough clues to finally stop some murders and address the situation. And depending how good a job it is, they'll see the truth within the truth. And that's really cool. Right. Um, And when I did mine, I based it on the game of clue. And I thought to myself, this is a really fun idea. You know, who did it with what weapon? I didn't care about where Uh, the where you you knew, (laughs) but that became a very simple thing, right? In order to get into, in, in order to get to accomplish your goal, you must figure out who did it with what weapon. And the fun part of it is that ghosts are taking you or possessing you. <laughs> and so you sometimes one of you may end up actually being the murderer. Uh, and, and, and that makes it a mystery mm-hmm. fun as well. Um, and so that kind of situation was a nice framework, right? I thought myself a framework and used that to tell the story. Um, but I don't know that, you know, any of this information would have helped me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you also have to always bear in mind what the players will do. And as this admits, uh, it's hard to predict character actions. And you, just like you don't want to take agency away in in a regular adventure, you don't want to take agency away as, as much as possible in any sort of adventure, including a mystery. And that's why it's, it's, you know, Logan's adventure puts that artificial limit on, Mm -hmm. You can do two things. Yeah. And even though it might only take you 20 minutes to do two of those two things, in order for the adventure to work, we have to make that assumption, mm-hmm. which some people are fine with. And then some players are going to say, why can't I do other things? We could have done this in 20 minutes. Uh, so it's something you always have to be aware of. And again, we get to the why, right? Why are we doing these things why does it work? Why does it not work? And what can we tweak to make it work better? Yeah. 
Yeah, it reminds me of, I think I've told this story before, but there was a third edition adventure we played in, in Living Greyhawk where there was a mystery. And the idea was we were supposed to follow all these clues and do all this stuff. And, and I forget how it happened. But one of the guys at the table goes, no, no, we're not doing that. We're throwing a party. And long story short, we threw a party and invited the entire town, spent a bunch of gold on it. And we had a guy that we took under our wing and a little local kid. And we, we showed him, here's how you, you, you really adventure. And as everybody comes in through the door to the party, we're detecting thoughts on them. And so everybody is who the guy, I think we thought we were getting a doppelganger or something like that. And so everybody comes in and we're like, is everybody here? No, one person didn't come to the party. We got our villain and we go there and sure enough, their villain ended up and end of story. And we got that thing done in 30 minutes <laughs> and we were happy as could be. Right. Mm -hmm. And the DM was like, well, that was a very clever way to tackle that. But sure. <laughs> yeah. Detect thoughts, detect evil paladin mm -hmm. abilities, right? All of those things make uh, speak with the infamous speak with dead mm -hmm. uh, makes makes sort of mysteries not a natural fit for a D and D adventure. Can you yeah. do it? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can it be done brilliantly? For sure. Um, does it? Is it a natural fit? No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, along those same lines, we get intrigue adventures mentioned. Uh, these are event-based but revolve around power struggles like guilds, crime syndicates, nobility, uh, temple hierarchies, etc. Um, like an exchange of favors, a rise and fall of individuals and diplomacy might be involved in an intrigue adventure. A prince's effort to be named heir to the throne, a courtier's ambition to sit at the queen's right hand, and a merchant's desire to open a trade route through enemy lands are the stuff of intrigue. We are told that to work, players and characters have to be invested in the outcome. It helps if they need a favor or if the plot is in the way of their goals. And then you can follow event-based procedures with two differences. The villains, you can have multiple villains or no villains. Uh, if you have no villains, you skip the villain steps one and two and instead start with the character goals and then the NPCs that they will be interacting with. Um, if you have many villains, then you spend lots of time on steps one and two, detailing all the different villains and their different plans. And then in step five, you would decide how those villains respond to the character's actions. Uh, the PCs may foil one villain's plans while advancing another villain's plans. And yeah, all of this is pretty sound with all of the caveats that we said before. Um, yeah. For me, this is no different than any other type of adventure because you should always be focused on the character's goals. Um, now, in this case, the character's goals may be tricky. They may change uh, based on information or based on certain outcomes. But for the most part, it's in a mystery. The character's goal is to find the truth with an intrigue. The character's goal is to advance whatever goal that they happen to choose. To me, this this I think the eight step process or whatever it is gets in the way of what this is all trying to do uh, and doesn't fit enough. And so I, I'll be curious whether the revised DMG takes this approach at all. Um, I almost think that you just want to talk about how to make exciting adventures. And that includes digging into these genres 
and what to do with those genres, specific things to bring in, but give the DM the freedom to approach it however, because I don't know that there is one way to do this and that this eight-step process works. It's really more thinking about how to make things interesting, how to make the adventure interesting, the plot development interesting, the villain interesting, and, and you know, how do you make an intrigue interesting to the players, right? What, what are the, and, and I just bullet right. point type things of what would make that a great experience and what to watch out for. Maybe that's it. Things to consider doing, things to watch out for, for each of these genres, and, and off you go. Yep. Uh, we get a section on more uh, on complications, which include moral quandaries, twists, and side events. Um, there's a table ex and, and an explanation of possible quandaries where the PCs must make a hard choice like uh, two allies refusing to work together so the PCs must choose the one that they are going to work with or two allies that give conflicting advice and the PCs must choose losing the respect of one of those allies. Makes sense. Uh, twists. We get a table of twists, for example, a time limit on what they need to do or needing to cooperate with an enemy to achieve their goal. Then we get side quests, again, table of ideas that are peripheral to the main goal, but may provide a benefit. Uh, and then, you know, some of them are just sub goals, I, I would say, rather than real side quests. Uh, any thoughts on that section? Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. It, it, they're so, they're, they're fine. It's just, um, again, I would, I would, I would want to, I think this could be done differently. <laughs> And I hope they experiment with that in this next DMG because because I think it's so so. It's just it's okay. Yeah, it's here are ideas, but we're not going to tell you why mm -hmm. these are good ideas or how to use them and why. It's just sort of here yeah. they are. What makes for a great side quest? You didn't tell me. You gave me one paragraph, and you gave me you know eight examples with things like slay a specific monster. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, the next section talks about creating encounters, where we hear encounters are the individual scenes in the larger story of your adventure. Uh, first and foremost, they should be fun for the players. Very true. Um, straightforward objective, a connection to the overarching story, building on previous and foreshadowing what is to come next. Um, they tell you that there are three possible outcomes for encounters, which aren't necessarily true, but we'll go with this going forward. <laughs> you can succeed, you can partly succeed, or you can fail. And the overall adventure should account for all three of these things. And okay, sure. Yeah, um, I mean, to, where to does have, your objection come from? Well, to have... An encounter can mean a lot of different things. Um, so I guess the if you know what your party's goal is, then you can have all sorts of variations on success, all sorts of variations on failure, and all sorts of variations on partly success. Um, and it's good. It is good to think about those, those things. And the more nuanced you can be with those outcomes, the more, uh, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The more nuanced the story can be, mm-hmm. I guess is, is what I'm looking for. Um, so I like that it breaks things down and starts to explain it. Uh, but I think this is like the first step in a larger process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. So, so what else do you have in this uh, section for us? So we have a discussion of character objectives, having clear objectives. So each encounter moves the story forward and provides progress. Uh, what happens if the PCs ignore objectives? What are the consequences? That's all good. And then we get into creating a combat encounter. And the second I saw that, I thought to myself, is there a sec- section on creating a non-combat encounter? And it made me kind of flip through and go, they really don't talk about non-combat encounters or even non-combat components to a combat encounter. And I thought that was a, a, an interesting and unfortunate omission. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of throughout this yeah. step, like later we'll get into exploration stuff, but but there's nothing here that, I mean, the section's called creating encounters. And I thought of this because we were doing Forge, Forge of Bows revisions, and there was a section I wrote that was very specific about what to do with combat, but I said encounters. And so one of the folks, either Mike or Scott, said, do you mean, when you say encounters, do you mean only combat? Oh, yeah, well, I got to address that and say that. And, and, and it's good to declare it, but that's a book that's teaching people how to do combat stuff. Here, when you're really saying creating encounters in the DMG, you need to account for that wide variety of things that are possible. And, and so I think that's a real big problem, especially in today's era where there's so much narrative play going on. Uh, folks are trying to do so many things with D&D. It's unfortunate that it goes that wildly. But anyway, it, it uh, th- this section is really combat focused and we go straight into combat encounter difficult of easy, medium, hard or deadly. And we get definitions. And those definitions are kind of shocking. Like, I actually wonder if if most DMs were quizzed on it, whether they'd get it right. Um, like, deadly is not a TPK. It could be deadly. There's a chance of deadliness for one or more PCs, and there is a risk of defeat. Medium has one or two scary moments, but no casualties. Might need healing resources. And that's probably lower than what folks would think these terms mean. Um, I don't know that they're appropriate terms. We actually in Forge of Foes redefine them because I think these don't sort of really particularly work well. But it speaks to how 5th edition is so death adverse as an edition without saying that. And I think it actually, this is the book where you should say that. What do you think? Yeah. And, and that goes to a big topic of mine, which is resource management. Mm-hmm. Right, One deadly encounter and then you get a long rest is can be scary, but is rarely scary. Um, give me five hard encounters in a row. Now we have, you know, before even a short rest, now we've got something to talk about. Now we are going to be in the realm of pe- the players are going to be paying attention uh, by that final hard uh, mm. encounter. So that sort of thing, you know, I'm I'm sure it is talked about, but needs to be overemphasized because of its importance. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, it, there is a section later that talks about the adventuring day, and it says most adventuring parties can handle about six to eight medium or hard encounters in a day. And there is a, a calculus of XP per day for each character by level. But later, Jeremy Crawford in interviews said they write 
all of their adventures and do all of their playtesting based on the party always being fully rested. So it's almost like they're just giving you this as a warning of, hey, if you go above this, it might be too much. But there's no real advice here as to what to do in a given day and what what makes for a good. And that's where, to me, it's not about so much just the. I mean, yes, it's important to know challenge concepts, but it's the the pacing of it, the the story beats that come from different amounts in a day. And, and none of that's really addressed. Right. We have our encounter challenge rules here, which are. I think the rules are fine. It's it's a it it was easier in fourth edition. This is almost like a return to third edition and in, in, in its approach. So it's a little confusing, which is why we probably see. I would guess around half of all DMs don't use this system, maybe even higher. Um, mm-hmm. It it is complex with a lot of steps and 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 requires adding up all the XP of the monsters and determining whether you're above the total and what that's what drives a certain difficulty level and. And if you have monsters and waves, you make one adjustment. Or if there's more than five PCs or fewer than three PCs, you make an adjustment. If there's multiple monsters, you make an adjustment. And all of that, I think, is um, you do need these kinds of rules, but they are very inexact because of how monsters are created and the wide variance in what we find mm-hmm. a monster can provide at a certain CR. So, and, and none of these rules are speaking that. It's one of the problems when you write all the books in the core and then years later, people have played it and really learned off of it. And I think it hopefully in rewriting this, well, it'll be interesting to see in rewriting the DMG, do they address how the edition actually runs or are they making enough tweaks to it that they, again, don't know how to say what to do for the edition that you're playing because they haven't seen where it is. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, as more and diverse player options come out, the synergy of rules makes characters more powerful. Even if you're not a devout power gamer, you just by default become more powerful, which takes that math and throws it right out the window. If you could even trust it at the start, mm-hmm. uh, it makes it even more out of, out of line. Um, so it, it's, it's good. It was good to have that there when this book was originally released. Uh but of course, it's now, I don't want to say irrelevant, but mm-hmm. it's, as you said, not necessarily very uh, complete and exact. And, and and this is why, you know, you have all these forum threads, Discord discussions of, I can never challenge my players. What do I do? Right. Uh, the, the Paladin has an AC I can never hit. If I could possibly hit it, they'll shield it away. Right. You know, like, what do I do? And nothing here ever addresses those kinds of situations. What to do when your party can handle everything you're throwing at them, right? What 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 do you do when things feel boring? You know, any of those kinds of things that can happen to people. Um, my players are on their phones, and I think it's a thrilling encounter. Right? <laughs> like n- none of that advice is is here. Um, we get just things like you know, hey, there should be two short rests per day, and yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I do like that they put like fun combat encounters, a little mm-hmm. section about things that you can throw into an encounter to switch things up to make players act in a different manner than they might otherwise. That might be optimal for them to never move and to stand in the same place and attack. So we get things like uh, features that encourage movements, chandeliers, traps, 
changes in elevation pits changes in elevation they always throw that one in mm. and for me it never quite lives up to mm. uh, it's you know it is it fun to put a goblin archer on a 30 foot tall pedestal that needs to be climbed sure it seems like it's fun but what happens so uh, the rogue uses a bonus action to dash and they're already up there on the top of the pedestal pushing the goblin off did it really add a lot of tactical um yeah, yeah not really now if you make it impossible to climb and then they need to use magic to get up there that does make it more interesting, more tactically interesting, of course. But then if you know your party has no magic to teleport and no way to climb, no way to fly, then that just becomes a drag for those parties. So it's a it's a tough nut to crack. I like elevation changes, but but it does take a lot of thought about how is someone negotiating this? What and what's the point? Is the point that my goblin's really hard to get to? Mm-hmm. Is the point that it's fun to get to the goblin? Um you know, like you had the uh, in 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 the the intro to to the Tyranny Dragons adventure, you have that hayloft, and that's a lot of fun because it's mm-hmm. like my monk got a, up there in a heartbeat, and I felt super cool doing it. And then another time I ran it, they set the whole place on fire, and that was trouble for the people who were up there. And just so it can be really good, right? Like those those elevation changes can yeah, yeah. lead to unexpected hijinks, and yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so little things like that, but they don't go far enough for me, as you said, into the other pillars and yeah. incorporating those other pillars, incorporating role play and exploration and those sorts of things into a combat and what that can mean. So random encounters are a way to deliver the unexpected. They are usually presented in the form of a table. When an encounter, when a random encounter occurs, you roll a die and consult the table to determine what the party encounters. Uh, We are given reasons to use them, such as to create urgency, drain resources, and reinforce themes. I don't use random encounters anymore. I did when I played Mm -hmm. AD&D, but when I DM, I want to know a reason for an encounter, and I want to build it and tailor it to actually carry forth a theme, uh, uh, you know, specifically, so... This is all great advice that doesn't mean much to me. Yeah, I was looking at some of the older Dungeon Masters guides, and I think those handle it best. I can't remember which one now, but but one of them really talked about if you're going to do this and you're going to set up the table, here's how to really think about the probabilities. And there's a piece here, but but it did it with examples and gives an example to him and really talks about what the different... Um, allocations are you know sort of says like you know these are common these are uncommon this is rare right that's what you're doing with this table when you're using two dice like this yep. um or i think some of the advice of like why rhyme of the frost maiden has these really great takes right where they do um you're you're rolling a die and then you're rolling a die for whether there's a blizzard and they've arranged the table such that the blizzard can't possibly show up with certain creatures. Or certain creatures won't ever show up in a blizzard. Certain only show up in a blizzard based on how they've put those roles together. And that's very clever. Um, so I think there is some advice to be given here, but I'd like more advice on how to make them fun and stand out. And because they're kind of mini encounters. And that's probably the reason you don't use them and why I don't really use them a lot is that 
to make something fun, well, I might as well just design it. Um, yes, I can improv things, but I right. will I will have a more fun experience if I design it. And so I can create the feeling of a random encounter that I've planned. And then it ends up having neat concepts to it, which is going to make for a better experience. <laughs> and that's probably worth talking about, too, I think. Yeah, yeah. And we get a section on, as Teo said, creating random encounter tables mm -hmm. um, and random encounter challenges, uh, noting that they don't have to be level appropriate, but don't slaughter the party. Always good advice, uh, or, you know, 99% of the time. Um, they also mentioned that not all random encounters should uh, require combat, allow players to hide or bargain, if a something shows up that is well, well beyond the means of the party, but most entries are intended to lead to combat. And so we get a description of what an appropriate challenge is, such as a single monster with the challenge rating equal to or lower than the party's level, which for me is called less than a speed bump. Or a group of monsters whose adjusted XP value constitutes an easy, medium, or hard challenge for the party as determined using the encounter building guidelines earlier in this chapter. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm I out mean, of words. Overall, I think um, this is one of the reasons. I think this chapter is one of the reasons we see so many DMs in 5th edition looking for answers is because this mm -hmm. does not really serve that task that, you know, the job that the DMs want out of it, that readers want out of it in today's era to understand how to craft an adventure or an encounter, not really fulfilled by this. I don't know that it's fulfilled by any of the previous editions either. I like some pieces better than others, but they're pretty similar. Uh, the fourth edition one, I think, is really the standout. That one, as we've said before, does a really good job of covering these things of just telling you you're going to run encounters, make it fun. Uh, Matt Colville did a, a video the other day on um, why you should DM, sort of encouraging if you've never DM before and you play, here's how to do it. And it's a very, you know, just take these ideas and run with it and build as you go. And, and it's the right kind of approach. I think that's almost the kind of thing that should be here. Um, and it and it's those tips that make like uh, you mentioned transitions are really one of the one of the people asking questions in the news segment mentioned transitions and that's a thing that's not here and wasn't in Matt Colville's video either that I think is really important is how is this ending and how is that lent ending leading anywhere to tie into what's coming next and that is a really important part of of encounter design and. So those are the kinds of tips I'd like to see here that I think can really transform how the experience that you create, right? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it all comes down to the question, what do you do? Because that's what you're going to ask your players all the time. Mm. And whether you're doing an encounter or an adventure or from round to round tactics, when you ask that question, what do you do? It's always it's generally fun to be surprised by players, but as the DM, you want to know the answer to that question before you ask. You want to know when you ask the player, what do you do? Whether it's, what do you do at the end of this encounter that you just wrapped up? Or what do you do uh, for your turn? Or what yeah. do you do in the middle of this role-playing encounter? 
you want to know based on the information that you've given them in the encounter, in the adventure, what might possibly come next. And if you know, or if you think you know, it's because you've set it up well to start and you mm -hmm. have anticipated what's going to happen next. If you're surprised, great. If you like that sort of randomness and you are willing and able to run with it, you can have a lot of fun with that. But you need to know the answer to what do you do if you are going to curate the experience in a way that is most pleasing for most players. Yeah. I mean, just and so this whole chapter needs to be how do you set up what do you do to be answered well? Yeah. yeah and, and the general craft of it of enjoying it i think could be spoken to better here too right because that's to me one of the things that that draws me to this over and over again is that i love trying to create the framework upon which a great story can be told bringing in all those disparate factors the ideas that are in my head the things that i think are happening in the larger plot the things the players are doing that what they're looking for out of this right Pulling that all into the encounter format and bridging into the larger adventure, that's just, I mean, that's glorious fun, right? That is, it's neat. It takes you back to being like, you know, in your, uh, like, I don't know, watching my dad in his doing carpentry work, right? It's that kind of, here's what I'm building. And then eventually a thing exists, right? That's what crafting an adventure <laughs> is like. It's that kind of get your hands in there and, and it's a good feeling and, and you go, well, I wasn't perfect. But boy, did I learn from that. And here's what I'm going to do next time. And But to do that, you have to be able to pull back. And I think this does not do enough of that pulling back to, to help you understand the larger way that you're operating and the reasons why you're doing these things and, and the questions you should be asking yourself. And that might even be another thing that could be here. Something like a, you know, before you're starting checklist of why you're even doing this, right? Getting to those questions you're asking about. And then after how did it go? What I learned from, right? Could be a good addition to this one. <laughs> yeah. So we have found our way through chapter three. Next week, we'll, we'll talk about chapter four, creating non-player characters. So thank you, uh, Teos, for your hard work and your knowledge that you've been sharing with us. Thank you, Sean, for your work, all the things you still and remember that you've created and done. Those three things I remember creating. <laughs> and I want to thank all of our listeners out there. Uh, thank you to our patrons as well. Thank you to our Master of Dungeon supporters. Uh, we get a special shout out to our Master of Realm supporters in our show notes. And the Masters of our Multiverse. Well, you get a special shout out right now. Such as Keith Aman uh, of the Monsters Know What They're Doing series. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Jim Klingler at DM Prime Mover, uh, Travis Lee, Chad Lynch, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mingi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo at Drago Russo. Ross Sandberg, Krishna Simone, say, 
Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, and thank you to all our listeners. If you are enjoying the show, please do consider supporting us on our Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash masteringdnd. Also, if you get a chance, leave us a review uh, on Apple Podcasts or what, via whatever means you listen to this show. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube if you do enjoy seeing us in high def action. So, Teos, uh, where could people <laughs> find your be- beautiful visage? Uh, well, the best place to go is alphastream.org. That's where all the stuff can be found. Uh, hopefully, there'll be a video coming out around the end of this week, I think. I'm trying to get things done while my wife's away. Um, Sean, where do we find you? Mm-hmm. Oh, you can find me at all the places on Twitter at Sean Merwin. The podcast is on Twitter at Mastering D&D. Also on Mastodon, you can find us. And, of course, the Patreon or at our YouTube channel called Mastering Dungeons. So, we now know how to create adventures and encounters thanks to the 4th or 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide. So, what are we going to do now, Teos? Well, it's really simple. We're going to take the Greyhawk campaign setting, take all the parts that we love, strip them out, and then run an adventure that will involve everyone being uh, polymorphed into a gnome Mm -hmm. we're going to call them we're going to call big b little b Mm, little b